And once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, I'm happy to welcome, welcome Corey Walker, who is a Young Voices contributor as well as a journalist from the Chicago with interests ranging from foreign policy to urban issues. Corey, great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Um, well, like I'm basically just um, um, a University of Michigan uh, student finishing up, um, just have like a lot of interest in uh, politics and policy. Um, I have a lot of interest in uh, a lot of different things ranging from criminal justice to urban policy, to education, to foreign policy. Um, that's basically it. That's I, I'm not that interesting of a person. I wish I had something interesting to say about myself, but I think, I'm just kind of maybe, That's all I can say about myself. I would, I would beg to differ that you're not that interesting a person, but I'm saying that because I'm looking at an article you wrote for realclearenergy.org about how the U.S. can fight Russia with fracking. And wow, if there was ever a time we needed some clarity on you know energy dependence, this is it. Um, talk to us a little yeah. bit about to, why is why is Russia such a big player today as far as uh, producing energy? And uh, talk to me about uh, the the role of fracking and how it could it could help the U.S. in its efforts to 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 punish Russia, you know, for the invasion of Ukraine. Well, I think we know uh, that Russia is one of the biggest oil producers uh, in the in the entire world. Um, and many would say that they have like a petro economy and that so much of their economy is built on um, exporting oil. And quite frankly, it's how one of the reasons they've been able to get away with many of their human rights abuses uh, domestically, but also abroad, is that they've been able to use uh, their their oil um, and a lot of their power in the energy sector as leverage against the West in general uh, to kind of keep them at bay while they do things like invade Crimea or just like oppress their own people domestically. Um, I think that when it comes to uh, the United States, the way that we can kind of um, help not just Ukraine, but also like look towards the future is also is uh, by trying to reorient the way that we uh, approach energy. So I think that going towards the future, it would really help America to embrace fracking because fracking is kind of like putting your destiny in your own hands, right? Like it, it's better to be able to um, extract oil on your own and energy on your own uh, to be able to um, have that sort of independence uh, to where you're not, you know, having to have these debates about having your hands tied about whether we should um, confront Putin um, or even Saudi Arabia, right, for example. And I think that um, America for a long time has had to compromise national morals uh, simply to keep the, the supply of oil and energy running in this country. And um, I think that by embracing fracking, that allows us to to not do that and not be beholden to uh, such malicious uh, foreign enterprises such as Russia. I think that's a fair characterization on your part too. That if if you gotta if you gotta sell a little bit of your soul to have access to to affordable energy, something's not right. Where does fracking come into the picture? Now I know that term alone is going to set to you know environmentally minded people you know into a little bit of a state of panic. But what is fracking? What's the role that it plays in in American energy independence? Well, it's a pretty complex issue. I think, as you said, um, fracking is deeply, like, heavily politicized for a wide variety of reasons. Um, but I would say that 
the best way that I would be able to describe it would be um, fracking would be uh, essentially inject like injecting uh, fluid at high pressures into underground rocks and formations underground uh, to kind of open up fissures uh, that will allow trapped gas or crude oil to uh, be able to flow through a pipe um, at, at the surface, right? So, like, essentially you are, you know, injecting fluid underground to kind of, like, extract oil from underneath. Um, America definitely does have enough uh, capacity in this country to be able to achieve energy independence uh, with fracking um, as a supplemental tool, Right. Um, and it, it's very heavily politicized, as we all know, anyone that paid attention to politics, especially on the Democratic side, right? Um, a large part of that, ironically, is because of a lot of uh, misinformation that has been pushed forward by Russia and Vladimir Putin, because fracking has been very much a uh, something they perceive as an existential threat to their nation, because energy independence in countries like America or in Europe uh, really would weaken their economy dramatically. Um, and so they're very anti-fracking because they still want to have a lot of power over uh, the, the energy sector. And so I think that Americans need to understand, particularly liberal or progressive Americans, is that when you embrace these anti-fracking talking points, you are essentially uh, helping push, helping to push Vladimir Putin's propaganda and you're helping uh, to, you know, uh, you're helping... Vladimir Putin. So I think that these are things that people need to keep in mind uh, when they, we talk about this issue. Corey, can we point to um, instances in the past, in fact, in the near past, where the U.S. has used fracking and, and the effects that it had in terms of our, our domestic production? I mean, yeah. So, I mean, the reality is, is that uh, the amount of fracking in America has essentially like gone up and down. Uh, but in 2013, uh, we were number one in the world, right, in oil and gas production, right? Um, that caused our crude oil process prices to drop dramatically, um, literally by over 50%. Uh, and that really hurt OPEC countries, uh, such as Saudi Arabia. Um, the reality is, is that back in uh, pre-2016, uh, pre-2020, America actually was fracking at quite a high, quite a high rate. Uh, the reality is, is that um, there's so much heat debate going around about it. It's so heavily politicized that we slowed that down by quite a bit. Um, President Joe Biden was inaugurated. That caused a lot of um, it, it really disincentivized, I would say, uh, investors from being willing to invest in fracking or oil extraction largely because obviously everyone knows that democratic politics have taken a large swing away from um, crude oil and, and just fossil fuels in general. So it's signaled to investors that we should not be, uh, that they should not be pursuing this as an opportunity. Uh, so because of that, that has uh, helped oil prices to uh, rise and spike dramatically. So um, when you look at your gas pump and, you see uh, how much you're paying. Um, I think a large part of that does come from the fact that we do have a party, a political party in power that has been very opposed to uh, to fracking and really fossil fuels in general. Um, and I think that realistically speaking, um, we, we have to like really look at that as one of the core issues if we really want to be able to 
uh, move forward as a country that has energy independence. Yeah, there's there's a definite reality check every time we go to fuel up. Everybody is is feeling that pain, and and of course it translates into everything that's delivered to to our stores as well. Um, yeah. So the Democrats obviously and and the environmental lobby uh, are quite in opposition. Um, is is it just enough to? I mean, is it simply a partisan issue? Is is there something bigger that's going to have to happen in Washington to 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 bring this to the forefront to where people are willing to look at alternatives? I think it's become, unfortunately, a deeply partisan divide um, to where, like, if you're a Democrat and you say you support fracking, it's almost kind of like a a third rail. Um, I think Joe Biden was a little savvier in that he wasn't willing to go as far as some Democrats like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren to call for a national ban on fracking. But with that said, I also think that that the die has been cast, right? Like, it's a political it's a political issue. Um, I think that particularly on the left, as you see certain uh, personalities like uh, Ilhan Omar or Shia Tlaib or AOC kind of become ascendant, um, this becomes more and more toxic on the left. Um, So it is, in my opinion, to answer your question, it is becoming more politicized. The right embraces fracking. Um, I think that obviously renewable energy is great, renewable energy is not at the stage to where we can have an entire country running on it right so i think that fracking is is good but unfortunately has become politicized part of that politicization comes like i said from propaganda being pushed forward by people like vladimir putin and the left that have really eaten it up uncritically we've got just a little under one minute left but i want to ask you uh, can we have the best of both worlds is it possible to still pursue renewable energy but uh, but still continue to utilize uh, fossil fuels as we have as we work toward that a hundred percent i and i think that's what we have to do i think we have to acknowledge that renewable energies are great and having a carbon carbon neutral uh future is great uh, we can want those things while acknowledging that the technology just isn't there at this point for us to um, realistically rely on it. So we need our fossil fuels. Um, we should pursue renewable energies just because it's good for the environment and it's good for society in general. Um, we can have the best of both worlds, uh, but we have to be realistic and understand that fossil fuels are necessary today. Maybe 30, 40 years from now, that won't be the case. But as of right now, technology just isn't advanced enough for us to live entirely on uh, renewable energy. Okay, again, we're talking with Corey Walker. He is a Young Voices contributor. Corey, where can people find you on social media? Um, my social media Twitter handle is at Corey Writing. So C-O-R-E-Y-W-R-I-T-I-N-G. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Jack Salmon to the show. Um, Jack, tell us just a little bit about yourself. This is your first time on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Tell us who you are and what makes you tick. Great, Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so, so my name's Jack Salmon. Um, I'm a Young Voices contributor, and I'm a researcher and writer on predominantly fiscal issues, so spending, deficits, debt. More recently, I've been interested in the fiscal drivers of inflation. Ooh, there, there's a topic everybody's getting kind of an object lesson in right now. Our, our money is purchasing less and less as we go forward. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, about where we really stand with inflation. And then let's talk about um, about your uh, the article you have here in National Review, how the Fed has failed in its inflation mandate. But let's let's begin with what is inflation and where does it stand? 
Sure. So the, the easiest definition of in, inflation um, for most people to understand is um, too too few goods. Uh, sorry, too much money chasing too few goods. So there's obviously a supply and, and a demand aspect to it. Um, the CPI at the last reading was at 7.9%, which is the highest level of inflation in uh, four decades, which is since the great inflation of the 70s and 80s. So it's quite significant, and it's it's really being seen across a broad spectrum of, of goods and now also moving into services. And um, anybody who goes to the grocery store is, is seeing those prices reflected in all, all sorts of goods. Um, and policymakers and journalists and pundits have, have, have their own theories as to what's driving it. Some people focus more on the supply side and talk about a broken supply chain and supply bottlenecks, while others like myself re also recognize the demand side and the fact that we've had decades of accommodative monetary policy combined with unprecedented levels of government spending. Yeah, and and really during just during the last two years, the amount of spending that was given or justified as COVID relief or otherwise has has put a lot of money into the system. Going back to your earlier definition of inflation, more dollars chasing the same amounts of goods and services means the purchasing power of every one of those dollars is being diminished. Uh, talk to me about the Federal Reserve and the role that it's supposed to play in maintaining low and stable prices. Yes, I, I I typically focus on on the fiscal aspect, but recently I was interested in in looking at the monetary side of things because I feel as though the Fed has almost got a free pass and um, it's not being held a, a, accountable for its own faults. So the Fed since the 1970s really has had a dual mandate. The dual mandate being number one to maintain low and stable prices, hence low and stable inflation. And the second mandate is maximum to, to attempt to maximize employment. In, a, in other words, keep unemployment as low as, as low as possible. Uh, this, the, the first mandate being low and stable prices was um, was determined in 2012 to be defined as around two percent PCE inflation, which is the, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. Uh, since 1990, up until the COVID pandemic. PCE did average around 2%, rarely reaching 3% or above. Um, so by that measure, it was, it, it was the Fed was relatively successful in, in maintaining stable prices. But starting in 2020, at um, a symposium in Jackson Hole, the Fed chair, Jerome Powell, decided to shift this stable prices um, aspect of the dual mandate away from having a 2% target and instead having a 2% average target over time. The idea here being that prior years, if inflation had averaged below 2%, we would let inflation run hot for what was said to be a, t a temporary period of time, although the specifics were never really given. And I, I, I believe that's that, that purposefully. Um, so unfortunately, we have massively surpassed that average inflation target of 2%. Um, and we've been over that target since at least April of last year, hence my article on the failure of the Fed to, to maintain its inflation mandate. And OK, so that's that covers the, the first mandate. Now, let's talk about uh, the um, boosting employment, uh, the, that second mandate during economic downturns. I know we saw a tremendous upheaval in terms of the unemployment rate during um, you know, the covid lockdowns. Where do we stand today? How, how much have we actually rebounded and, and how much of a problem still remains? 
In terms of the, the official unemployment numbers, we're back down to where we were before the COVID pandemic. So we're back at record low levels of unemployment. Now, there are other measures of employment and, and labor market dynamics that that are, are not fully recovered. And, and there are several explanations for this. Obviously, a, a, pan, a pandemic with government mandated shutdowns and business closures are going to have long-term consequences on the labor market, um, one of which was that we saw a, a, around about 3 million um, workers leaving the labor market to retire early. Now, some of them are starting to, to flow back into the market, but that's obviously going to have a huge impact over the long run on, on, on labor market dynamics. And that's just one aspect. Another aspect was the massively overgenerous fiscal support, much of which is still going through the system. People. People are not quite aware that there's still about $700 billion of fiscal stimulus working its way through the system this year that not yet been dispersed. And that's obviously having an impact on labor markets. So there's really various factors as to, as to what's driving differences in employment. But in, in terms of the broad measures that we typically use, the labor market is 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 doing very well. It's, it's actually very tight, um, hence, hence the upswing in wages in recent months. Um, but And that's also another factor um, for, for inflation moving forward. Wow. It's, you know, you mentioned earlier that I think it's the, the CPI shows inflation at what, 7.9 percent. But yeah. but this varies, right, from from different commodities, for instance, lumber, I'm sure is, is well above 7.9 percent. There are probably other commodities that are, that are well into the double digits. Is, is the Fed, uh, let me ask this another way, can the Fed control inflation at this point or is this like a fire that has slipped beyond its restraints and is going to go the direction it's going to go i i think you might be correct in in your latter uh, assertion there I, I i think the fed is is applying too little too late in in my opinion the big issue really was so there is a monetary and a fiscal aspect. The big issue, the big issue wasn't that the Fed, that, that the government reacted to the pandemic with, with, with massive fiscal stimulus. It was that it didn't turn off the fiscal stimulus once we had entered the recovery stages. It just continued um, throughout 2021. I mean, the Fed only end, ended accommodative monetary policy six days ago. So it stopped quantitative easing six days ago. Wow. And it's only raised rates by 0.25. Um, the Fed can help quell the spike in inflation by raising rates. I think it needs to raise them higher. Um, I think 50 basis points rather than 25 at each meeting would, would be um, more significant in reaching those goals. But I also have to state that it can't just be action from the Federal Reserve. After all, this inflation was ultimately driven by fiscal policy. So we need to have fiscal consolidation combined with Fed action. That could be painful. Uh, admittedly, that, that, that may not have, an, have a positive impact on the economic outlook, but it's also necessary. Um, similar action was required in the early 80s to get the great inflation under control. We had monetary and fiscal tightening combined. The difference now is, at, at that point, we had a debt to GDP of about 25%. It's now 100%. So the cost of raising interest rates on debt servicing is going to be significantly higher. And then that has ramifications for the possibility of fiscal dominance, the Fed losing its independence and instead trying to act towards the aims of, of, of Congress, essentially. And that's a real risk moving forward. 
So there is no easy way forward. I mean, no, I'm afraid not. Well, hopefully they won't just keep kicking the can down the road. But wow, that's that's a a scary thought. Jack, tell tell our audience where they can find your writings and where they can find you on social media. So you can find my my writings and my bio on the um, Young Voices page. And I believe my Twitter handle is also there if, if you're interested in following me on Twitter. Okay, again, we are talking with Young Voices contributor Jack Salmon. He is a writer on economics, and uh, you've been featured in a lot of uh, really great publications. Thanks for shedding some light on this uh, difficult topic, and uh, let's, let's hope for brighter days ahead, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on, Brian. Back on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Santiago Varela to the program. Hi, how are you doing? Hey, Brian. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me, and, and I'm excited to be here. Let's uh, First of all, let's have you tell our audience just a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Okay, so uh, I am from Mexico City, born and raised here. I study economics at ITAM, that is a well-known school for, for its economics and uh, I am very passionate about science and technology. Uh, I, I write about this very often. Uh, I'm a contributor contributor at Young Voices, and I also host a podcast where we talk about technological disruption. So I like to relate technology to, to what I study in economics. Well, I'm very anxious to pick your brain on this issue of um CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. Um, I think a lot of us got our eyes opened up here in the last month or so when Canada was cracking down on uh, on contributions to the, the Truckers Freedom Convoy. And there was a particular interest in cryptocurrency donations that were being made. For people who aren't familiar with CBDCs, help us understand a little bit better about what this concept is and, and how it relates to cryptocurrency. Okay, so to start, central bank digital currencies, just because of their name, we might think of them as substitutes to traditional cryptocurrencies as Bitcoin or Ether. However, they are not alternatives. They are maybe complements to each other, but we don't know what they are yet. And uh, CBDCs are a topic that really worries the crypto community because precisely Bitcoin and Ether, they were created with the objectives of of privacy and all these ideas that the cypherpunk movement has. So CBDCs would be a great threat to privacy, especially it depends on on how they are designed. But the main difference between CBDCs and cryptocurrencies is that cryptocurrencies are decentralized, and that is their their feature, their characteristic that really makes them attractive to cypherpunks and to people who, who really care about privacy and see privacy as a human right or who people who really care about their freedom like you and me do. So that is the main difference. A CBDC wouldn't really be a blockchain and it wouldn't be decentralized. It would be centralized. 
Yeah, I look. I'm I'm just a newbie when it comes to to cryptocurrency. So the learning curve for me right now is very steep. But it's the privacy and the decentralized aspect of it that makes me go. This is worth another look. At the same time, I see people in uh, in position in different regulatory or governmental positions who are taking a very keen interest, and I'm not sure that they have the same um, altruistic motives that I do. Is that safe to say? Yeah, that is definitely safe to say. Uh, well, in 2022, cryptocurrencies and CBDC have really been on the on the public discussion, especially in January. Um, there was a paper released by the by the Federal Reserve. Uh, then after that, in February, there was a joint uh, publication between the MIT um, Digital Currency Initiative and the Boston Fed, which is the out of the 12 Federal Reserve banks, it is the the bank that 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 the Fed would most rely on when it comes to crypto and uh, technology strategies. And then we had the executive order a couple of weeks ago with President Biden. So on one side, we have people that are really uh, want to make crypto go popular and they want to especially make the United States be, be the center for cryptocurrencies because uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are really akin and they align to um, traditional American values like freedom of speech um, and, all, and, you know, all, all of this. Uh, so on one side, we have that. And we have majors like uh, Major Francis Suarez that really want to foster cryptocurrencies. But on the other hand, we have people like Elizabeth Warren that are, are really skeptic about this. And, and mostly, I would say, is because they, they lack the understanding of this. And, and they don't understand the freedom aspects and the philosophical part behind cryptocurrencies because it's not just all technical it's there's really like a political philosophy behind all this well and you mentioned earlier privacy is a big part of that and and that uh, increasingly that that matters i mean you look at people just for instance people who donated uh $15 to the Canadian Freedom Trucker, you know, Trucker Freedom Convoy, who find themselves, you know, with the bank accounts frozen or threatened, you know, that uh, they could have their accounts frozen. And it's like, okay, maybe that privacy matters more than we thought. Now, I'm curious, did the Fed report have anything good to say about cryptocurrencies? And if so, what well, did they say? It's very, well, it's very curious because the, the, uh, the report published on, on January actually limited uh, its words about cryptocurrencies to, I think it was just two sentences and it was very skeptic, mostly because the Fed, they, well, the public feels like the Fed didn't really want to say something that would uh, scare the markets uh, before they had like a, a technical understanding about what they were talking about. So that's why we think they waited until February when the, this pub, the, there was another report published, but it was between the Boston Fed and MIT. So they did touch on that. The curious thing about and the exciting part about the report of February is that if we see who the authors behind that uh, white paper were, and you can Google them, look and up, uh, look them up on in LinkedIn and stuff, you're going to find that there most of them are Bitcoin and crypto enthusiasts. There's some uh, Bitcoin core developers. So it's very uh, telling, you know, that the people design probably designing the future American CBDC are also. Um, well, crypto enthusiasts. So on one part, it's that. And then I really want to touch on the privacy thought part that you were talking about in, in, in Canada's issues with the truckers, because this is precisely like the perfect the marketing campaign for Bitcoin. You know, what they are doing is they are precisely showing uh, what the power of Bitcoin is. And, and it's that, well, I, I'm going to talk a little bit here about history and history of money. If we go a little bit to 
Pearl Menger from the Austrian School, founder of the Austrian School of Economics, he has this concept about the saleability of money. And that's what makes money hard and makes money, we, what gives us sound money. And But currently, Saifuddin Amos, who is the author of the Bitcoin standard, took this concept of Karl Menger a little bit further. And he said that, yes, money has to be saleable, but there's a new criteria to saleability. And it's precisely this privacy and decentralization criteria, because money cannot be hard and sound if there is someone putting constraints on when you can donate to truckers or when you can sell your money. So this is what precisely makes Bitcoin unique, that it is, um, you you can't restrain it. And then there's a, an interesting part. There's people that say, no, it's just you can't restrain a, a Bitcoin because it was there were some uh, frozen accounts from exchanges so that. But that is just the lack of technical understanding because exchanges aren't decentralized. And actually, that's why in the crypto community, they say, not your keys, not your crypto. So yeah, this, this is a really important part that I wanted to touch upon. So let me ask you this, uh, Santiago. Where would you recommend people who are trying to get their minds around this are going to find there's a lot to understand here. What's a good place to start? Well, YouTube was uh, trying um, researching by yourself. There's a, a really great quote about in precisely in the Bitcoin standard that I was mentioning that says before investing in crypto or in Bitcoin, your first investment should be in really learning how to what this is, how to uh, how to say securely store them. There's many technical aspects that that might make big Bitcoin uh, not uh, not convenient for many people. So there's really some investment and personal responsibility that you have to take into if you really want to to, to see what crypto is all about, and especially Bitcoin. So that would be the first uh, recommendation I would make. And I, I would second your recommendation of YouTube. I'm telling you, everything from changing a headlight in my car to learning about crypto, there's a great video out there somewhere that will teach you the basics. So I want to ask your opinion. Is crypto, or for that matter, is blockchain the next uh, logical advancement in technology? Uh, like we have the Internet, right? We have Internet 2.0 right now. Is blockchain where we are headed next? Yeah, well, it is inevitable. Right now, we're already seeing the first steps of what is Web3. And it's this, you were precisely mentioning, the second stage of Internet, Web2. Now we're going into Web3. And it's related precisely to, like, the principal characteristic of Web3 is its decentralization. And it it makes us not only be um, users, but now we are co-creators. You know, now you can, it's a world of, open source projects and, and everything. It's not necessarily com- controlled by, by companies. So Web3, in, in a way, it is inevitable. And uh, actually, it, we already know that it's going to happen because some of the biggest banks in the United States have already embraced it. And if the big banks like JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley are embracing all of this and they're saying they're going to be on the metaverse and all this thing. So you, we know it's coming. They see the writing on the wall, don't they? Well, yeah, they see the profits that then they come out of here, so they, they don't want to miss out on that. Okay, again, we are talking with Santiago Varela. Uh, tell everybody where they can uh, find your writings and also where they can follow you on social media. You can find me on social media at Santiago, V-A-R-1-A. Uh, that's my Twitter username. I'm, I'm only on there, and uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn with my name, Santiago Varela. 
But I would recommend to go to my Twitter page there. You can find a link to my podcast, all my writings for for young voices, which are in English. And I also publish uh, every week in Spanish for a couple of newspapers here about these topics. So the intersection of technology, economics, and a little bit of philosophy, which I'm also very passionate about. I sure appreciate you taking the time to visit with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan, for the invitation. Welcome you back. This is our final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Very happy to welcome Thomas Irwin, who is a Young Voices contributor. And Thomas, I understand you wear a few other hats as well. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, thanks, Brian. Um, yeah, so uh, I am uh, a resident of East Los Angeles. Um, I'm a contributor to Young Voices, um, but I also spent the better part of the last uh, eight years doing um, community and economic development in the faith-based nonprofit world. Um, so practically what that looks like uh, is doing uh, microfinance, um, working with small businesses, doing job training, um, academic mentoring, um, and, and really just trying to help people uh, achieve economic opportunity. Um but living in Los Angeles and specifically California, what I've discovered through the years is that uh, in order to actually lift people up um, economically, you you also have to look at policy, right? So uh, our state, um, unfortunately, has a lot of what I would consider bad economic policies on the books. Um, and so you can do a lot trying to work with individuals, um, help them gain economic opportunity. But unless you confront some of those bad policies that exist on the state and local level um, that hold people back, you're really not going to uh, put people much uh, further ahead than they were when you started, unfortunately. Now, um, so Tom, it, Thomas, it, I'm, it, looking, I'm looking at a piece you wrote for the OC Register talking about the California Environmental Quality Act. And I have to say, before I read this piece, I had no idea that uh, CEQA even existed. But uh, you talk about policy that, that can actually get in the way and trip people up. This looks like a prime example of it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, CEQA, which is kind of known colloquially, the uh, California Environmental Quality Act, um, is actually quite an old law. It was actually signed um, in 1970 by all people of Ronald Reagan when he was governor of huh? California. Um, and, and, you know, but it, it, there were real reasons, right, for the law to be um, put in place. Um, it, living in East Los Angeles, there's a lot of freeways. Um, a lot of those freeways were built in the 60s. Uh, the government used eminent domain to take often low-income Mexican-American households' uh, land uh, to build those freeways through the community. Um, and so there was a real sense that, hey, we need to do something um, to give uh, local uh, residents a chance to, um, you know, defend uh, their, their environment, right, their local environment. The problem is, is that CEQA, especially as time has gone on, has proven to just be a very poor tool to do that and has had loads of unintended consequences. Um, so in the piece, I cite the specific example of UC Berkeley, um, which is one of our more uh, prestigious universities, right? It's, it's a household name. Um, and uh, they actually were going to be forced to freeze enrollment and deny admission to 3,000 um, young people because under CEQA, they had not gone through essentially the right paperwork um, to expand to house that many students. And a group of local residents in Berkeley were able to um, to sue them and, and basically put a halt on these young people's um, 
you know, path to admission to the university. Thankfully, in the, in the last week since I published the piece, the California State Legislature actually stepped in and voted unanimously to exempt uh, student housing from CEQA. The, the problem is, Brian, is that um, CEQA actually is, is is it's far worse than that one example. Um, there's numerous examples of CEQA um, being used to block things, which even just talking about the environment, right, have undeniable environmental benefits, right? So CEQA is used routinely to block solar panels um, from going up in communities. Right, um, is blocked uh, bike lanes, and I think most um, wow impactfully. Yeah, it's it's crazy, right? Like you know, those are things that you would think would be slam dunks from an environmental perspective, right? Especially when 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 local people want to put these things up on their property, right? We shouldn't the government shouldn't be standing in the way of people taking those steps. Um, but most importantly, it's it is routinely used to block new housing, um, and this is really important because, as many people know, California has a um, terrible housing crisis. It's having a tremendously negative impact on my kind of neighbors and uh, friends here, you know, in Los Angeles. Um, my wife and I. I would like to buy a house. We can't um, at the moment because it's too financially affordable. And, and there's many reasons, there's many policies on the books that contribute to that, but CEQA is, is a key one. Um, and this is in spite of the fact that we know that um, new housing is on net uh, a slam dunk for the environment, right? New housing ha- is just technologically better. Um, new housing, especially in urban areas, allows people to walk more often, to choose to walk more places, um, access more places more easily. Um, and obviously, it's a huge um, economic driver, right? Um, so CEQA is is basically a tool that um, is being used against the environment at this point, um, often by local residents who just they don't want change in their community. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that, using examples of California's um, bad policy, I think CEQA is is near the top of the list. Is this a case where once a policy is in place, it becomes almost an immovable object? In the sense that, you know, reform or removal of it, um, you know, well, this is the way we've done things since 1970. And, you know, therefore, we just have to keep doing things this way, even if we're getting diminishing returns on why the policy was instituted in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a case of um, in some ways just inertia. Right. Uh, Policymakers, um, you know even when it's clear that a law is harming people, has real harms. And I think in CEQA's case, it's, it's, that is very much the case. Um, you know, if you, I, if you ever read a CEQA report, it, it can be hundreds and hundreds of pages. Um, so the, the real truth is no one ever um, reads the reports, right? They're just there for, um, for obstruction. And so, so part of what you see also is that um, as the law is on the books, there become specific groups that uh, it becomes in their interest to have the law on the book. So obviously I mentioned like community groups. So if you live in a neighborhood and you don't want there to be new housing, even if that new housing will be a net benefit to the city or the community overall, if you as a particular resident don't want um, your neighbor building uh, expansion of their house or building extra units, um, you can use CEQA. Um, it's also a tool used by organized uh, labor, right? Um, to try to get uh, better contracts, right? Cause they know that developers do not want CEQA. Uh, they don't want to go through the process. So they'll often compromise and in, in lieu of of a suit that would bring a sequel into play, they'll give better terms, right? Um, and it's, it, you know, I'm not someone who is categorically opposed to organized labor, but if you look at the construction trade specifically in California, they have some of the most lucrative um, contracts um, of any kind of uh, construction industry in America. And it's often because of sequel. They're, they're given kind of sweetheart deals. Um, 
And so there actually are a lot of interests who want to see CEQA continue because they personally benefit, even though the whole state, right, your average resident of the state is not benefiting from CEQA. Um, but those those voices are very loud in Sacramento and the state legislature. Um, and again, politicians often just are, are unwilling to, to change things, right, even when they see the clear harms. Something you point out in your article in the OC Register is that the, there was actually a choice between scarcity and more of a, an abundance, uh, uh, economic abundance approach to this. And it appears that uh, the the folks in power have have chosen scarcity. Let's deal with scarcity as opposed to uh, creating economic abundance. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think in this way, CEQA is actually um, a good symbol of a broader problem in California. California has, in, in some ways, one of the most vibrant um, and growing economies, right? We have the world's biggest tech sector, um, most successful tech sector, if you just look at um, economics. We have lots of jobs being created. It, we should be and historically have been a hub for economic growth and opportunity. Um, but right around the time CEQA was passed, the 70s, um, there was kind of a mindset shift, right? California started to believe that, hey, there's too many people here, right? And and it's even something you'll explicitly hear people say um, at neighborhood meetings, often when CEQA is being invoked, right? That why are people moving here, right? We have too many people here. They should move somewhere else. I mean, I think that's just a fundamentally misguided idea. Um, I think economic growth is one of the greatest things that we've seen in America in the century. Um, it has included far more people in um, economic prosperity, allowed them to achieve the American dream, um, and um, and even is good for the environment, right? Like when you have growing um a growing economy, it allows you to invent things like solar panels, um, like Tesla cars, right, that are, are long-term good for the environment, right? So um, so I think we've just fundamentally in California um, come to see economic growth as um, something negative, when actually it's it's in many ways foundational to all these other values, right? In order to have inclusive economic growth, in order to have environment, in order to have protect individual rights, it's easier to do those things when you have economic growth. Um, and so I think, yeah, in many ways, CEQA just illustrates that we in California need to embrace um, growth, right? More jobs, more housing, um, you know, more people being included in prosperity. That That's really the vision I think that um, California used to have. And I think we as a state, um, at least, you know, residents who care need to reclaim um, the good that comes with economic growth. So where does the actual motion, the actual movement to reform CEQA begin? Yeah, so like I said, I mean, the state legislator thankfully took an incremental step this past week to exempt student housing from CEQA, and I think that's a great first step. Um, As I argue in the article, I I think we need to go uh, bigger. I I think we um, should go as far as making all new housing. Um, They call it infill development, right? If you've already developed a piece of property, um, you should not, uh, CEQA should not apply. Right, if, it, if you're trying to build new housing on that property. Um, we know we, there's been enough economic studies to know that new housing in these circumstances will be an environmental uh, benefit. And I don't believe that CEQA serves its purpose by, by delaying these properties, making them more expensive, delaying how long um, they'll be implemented by using CEQA. Okay, again, we are talking with Thomas Irwin. He is a Young Voices contributor as well as uh, works for a faith-based nonprofit in Los Angeles focused on economic development. Tell us where people can follow your writing and where we can find you on social media as well. Yeah, great question. Um, well, you can read the original piece. Uh, it's time to reform CEQA at the OC Registrar. Um, you can also follow me. Um, I have a, a Substack blog. Uh, it's called Thomas Pontifications. Um, and you follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm Coach Thomas LA. I, I coach basketball in some of my spare time, so that's where the name comes from. Um, I, I, I'll 
post on there uh, whenever I write and also various uh, commentary on California politics. So if you're interested, uh, please follow me and, and learn more. Okay, great visiting with you, Thomas. Let's talk again soon. All right. Thank you, Brian. 